Section 24 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12, Audenarde, Part 1. As soon as all danger of invasion was over, Marlborough started for The Hague, where he met Prince Eugène to arrange the plan of the next campaign. The Emperor had definitely refused to allow Prince Eugène to go to Spain, but promised to send some troops there under Count Starenberg. Eugène was to command an army which was to be got together to act on the Moselle, whilst the Elector of Hanover was to command the German army on the Rhine. But though this was to be the plan of the campaign as publicly stated, Eugène and Marlborough came to a private agreement that Eugène was to lead his army to combine with Marlborough's, that they might strike a decisive blow in the Netherlands. It was easy for Eugène and Marlborough, who knew no jealousy of one another, to work together, but it was another matter to get the other allies to fall in with their plans. Each year there was the same difficulty in prevailing on the different German princes to supply the troops they had promised. Each year they made new demands before they could be persuaded to give their aid. Prince Eugène, who was, like Marlborough, an able diplomatist as well as a great general, and who possessed the entire confidence of the Austrian court, started from The Hague to visit the courts of the different allies, and by persuasion and promises to hasten their preparations. He made Marlborough promise to meet him at Hanover to soothe the jealous temper of the elector who did not at all like the idea that a new German army was to be formed on the Moselle, for he feared lest greater fame should follow the deeds of Eugène's army than of his own. He was pacified, however, by the fair words of Eugène and Marlborough, but they did not dare to tell him what was their real plan for the campaign. Their stay at Hanover was very short. Eugène went on to Vienna to hasten the assembling of the troops, Marlborough returned to The Hague and then went to join his army near Brussels. The Duchess and Godolphin hoped that after his meeting with Eugène at The Hague, he would come back to England for a short while. They were vexed that he went to Hanover instead. They wanted his aid in their party difficulties at home, and did not seem to see that he had enough on his mind already. Marlborough's answers to their querulous letters show his utter weariness of all these feuds, and his earnest desire for a little peace and rest. But nothing is of importance to him compared with the love of his wife. All this I could bear, he writes to her, if I could be so happy as to gain your love and esteem, for however unhappy my passion and temper may make you, when I have time to recollect, I never have any thought but what is full of kindness for you. Once or twice he says that if he only can do something great for the Queen's cause in this campaign, he would like to retire, that he might enjoy a little rest with his wife and be sometimes with his children. His thoughts run upon the magnificent house that was preparing for them at Blenheim, and he finds time to look after the making of hangings for it in Brussels. He writes to the Duchess, I have been to see the hangings of your apartment and mine, as much as are done of them, I think, are very fine. I should be glad at your leisure that you would direct Vanbrugh to finish the breaks between the windows in the great cabinet with looking-glass, 
for I have resolved to furnish the rooms with the finest hangings I can get. The preparations for the campaign were not getting on as quickly as Marlborough had hoped. He writes, The general backwardness of the Germans is extremely discouraging. And again, I would not willingly blame Prince Eugène, but his arrival at the Moselle will be ten days after his promise. The French, who had only themselves to depend upon, and who had not to wait for troublesome allies, had already assembled a formidable army under Vendôme. With him was sent the Duke of Burgundy, Louis the Fourteenth's grandson and heir, and the Pretender. The presence of the Duke of Burgundy in the army was a sign that they intended to do great things, the fame of which might cast glory upon the royal prince. The way in which the Dutch had administered the government of the Spanish Netherlands since their conquest by Marlborough had caused much discontent among the population. The French knew this and determined to make use of it. Vendôme misled Marlborough by marching as if to attack Louvain, and Marlborough fixed his camp at Terbanque, immediately outside it. Then the French suddenly broke up their camp and marched toward the Scheldt. Bodies of troops were detached and sent against Ghent and Bruges, where the inhabitants, already in correspondence with the French, let them into the town and enabled them to overpower the garrison. Marlborough, as soon as he heard of the march of the French army, broke up his camp and followed them the day after they had started. He soon heard that he was too late to save Bruges and Ghent. Alarm spread throughout the country and the army. An attack against Brussels was feared. Marlborough saw that the only thing to be done was to risk a battle without awaiting the arrival of Prince Eugène's troops. Eugène had been pushing on with the utmost haste, and thinking that a battle was imminent, came on alone without his army. He reached Marlborough's camp soon after the capture of Ghent and Bruges was known. Marlborough greeted him joyfully. I am not without hopes of congratulating your highness on a great victory, he said, for my troops will be animated by the presence of so distinguished a commander. The French had determined next to attack Audenarde, and Marlborough managed to send reinforcements there which entered the town in safety. It was an anxious moment, and with fatigue and anxiety Marlborough fell ill. His doctor pressed him to leave the camp, but he refused, and from his tent gave orders for the movements of the army. The enemy was proceeding to invest Ardinarda, and wished to occupy a strong camp at Lassine on the Dender, but Marlborough was too quick for them. He sent on a corps under General Cadogan to occupy Lassine, and followed with his army marching day and night. They reached Lassine in time to see the French army appearing just too late upon the heights. Marlborough had thus managed to place himself between them and their own frontier. They withdrew disappointed to cross the Scheldt at Gavre and shelter themselves in a strong position behind the river as they were obliged to give up hopes of investing Audenarde. Marlborough's next plan was to cross the Scheldt a little higher up than the French, to place himself between them and Audenarde, and if possible force them to give battle. It was a bold scheme, for the army had to march fifteen miles before it could be brought face to face with the enemy. Cadogan was once more sent on to prepare bridges for crossing the Scheldt. 
he left Lassines at dawn on the 11th July, 1708, and the whole army followed at eight o'clock. Whilst Cadogan was preparing, the French were crossing the river lower down at Gavre, without the smallest suspicion that the enemy were so near. By noon Cadogan's bridges were ready, and leaving some of his troops to guard them, he passed over with the rest to reconnoitre. The country to the north of Audenarda, in which the French were taking up their position, is fertile and richly cultivated, watered by many tributaries from the Scheldt, and covered with villages and windmills. Its whole surface is undulating, rising at times into bolder hills which are called cooters. Cadogan observed some foraging parties of the French about the villages of Aina and Herne, and sent his cavalry to attack them. He drove them back and took several prisoners. The French now learnt the nearness of the Allies, and a large body of troops was sent against Cadogan. He might have been annihilated, but fortunately, at that moment, the cavalry of the main Allied army was seen crossing the bridges. Marlborough, who knew how near the French were, had been alarmed for the safety of Cadogan. He pressed forward with Eugène at the head of the Prussian dragoons, urging them to full gallop in his haste. The French, when they saw them on the bridges, thought the whole army was at hand and fell back. The experienced eye of Vendôme could see from the clouds of dust in the distance that the main body of the army was some way behind, and that there was still time for attack. But the French army was divided amongst itself. The cultivated and religious Duke of Burgundy was too disgusted with the coarse and profane character of Vendôme to be able to appreciate his military genius. He preferred listening to other advisers, and Vendôme was hampered on all sides. Now, when it would have been advisable to await the Allies near the spot where they would cross the river and attack them if possible before they could form, the Duke of Burgundy insisted upon withdrawing to a strong position on the heights on the other side of the little river Norken. Precious time was wasted by indecision, and Marlborough knew how to use his enemy's mistakes. He and Prince Eugène actively superintended the crossing of the river, some of the cavalry were sent over through Audenarde to save time, and the left column was able to form in front of the little village of Beveren. Cadogan with the advanced guard was not idle. By some mistake, a body of French troops had been posted in an advanced position at Aina, where they could get no support from the main army. Cadogan advanced, attacked them, and drove them back over the Norken. This repulse filled the main body of the French army with desire to fight. Vendôme saw that if they remained quiet, the enemy, weary from a fifteen miles march, would not dare to attack them, and they might retire in the night. But the Duke of Burgundy and the chief officers were too impatient to listen to anything, and the moment seemed favorable. It was already four in the afternoon, and the Allies had not yet formed after crossing the river. The Duke of Burgundy would not take advice from Vendôme, even as to the position of the troops, and an hour was wasted in useless marching. This gave the Allies time to form. Marlborough judged that the enemy meant first to attack with their right a small body of troops which were posted in the hedges round Rundfeldt. He rapidly ordered other troops to advance to support them. He then made his final arrangements. Out of compliment, he gave Eugène the command of the right, 
which consisted of by far the larger part of the army, mostly English troops, and himself commanded in the centre. The fighting began round Rundfeldt as he expected. The enemy attacked before reinforcements had arrived, but the English fought bravely and held their ground till help came, and they were able to attack the enemy's centre. The troops, divided by the rivulets and hedges, fought in small bodies, struggling for each inch of ground, and the roar of the muskets never ceased. End of section 24